Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the second Sunday after Trinity, June 13th, 2021, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Again, special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the Old Testament lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Ezekiel chapter 17 verses 22 through 24. can be found on page 1308 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name Ezekiel 17 verses 22 through 24. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord." I bring low the high tree and make the high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Heavenly Father, these are your words and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes I wonder how much the phrases I grew up with and am familiar with really are common. Take, for instance, if I mention the KISS principle, how many people here actually recognize what that is? I, 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 would want, I, I see some hands know what the KISS principle is. Good, I, I, I'm not completely out there. Now, there are, in fact, a certain amount of possibilities for what that might be. The KISS principle might be referring to over-the-top, ostentatious entertainment like the band KISS. That would be something, but probably doesn't apply to sermon prep or biblical interpretation that way. The KISS principle, especially for those immersed in social media and GIFs, might refer to the chef's kiss, something like that. The international sign for achieved perfection. Now, that actually could have some place in the realm of biblical interpretation, especially if you consider the inglorious history of people missing the mark on interpreting certain passages of Scripture. We would maybe react if someone correctly gets a tough passage in Scripture, like interpreting properly, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and not applying it to your morning workout, we might respond with something like that. But then again, there's a certain measure of humility necessary when studying and teaching Scripture, and I myself rarely like the sermons I end up writing, so it would be hard to apply. I suppose the KISS principle might also refer to some sort of sentimental romanticism, but since all of you know me, we don't have to dwell there too long. I'm not going to get mushy on you. 
So that leaves us with the actual definition for those who are still confused of the KISS principle. And because we have young children among us, and especially parents of young children, who may or may not want to have the definition parroted over and over and over again in their homes this afternoon, I'll leave some ambiguity to it. KISS is an acronym, and the first three words are keep it simple. You can fill in the fourth S if you want. In today's lesson, we've come across a section of Scripture that begs to have the KISS principle applied to it. There is a plethora of rich biblical imagery, and we could fairly spend a great deal of time on almost every single word of these three verses. And those of you who go through Bible study with me on Wednesday night are kind of nodding your head, a little bit of word going on right here. I think these three verses, Liz, we might spend a whole summer on these three verses in regular Bible study, but we're not going to do that. Sometimes in the realm of preaching, and especially of gospel proclamation, we need to remember to keep it simple. And in this case, what that means is that everything we've just read and everything we're about to consider in Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24, is about Jesus. It's really that simple. And so for the sake of both brevity and simplicity, we're going to highlight four key images and draw our attention to the Son of God and His completed work of redemption on the cross and with the empty tomb. And it all starts with the sprig of the Lord. Our Old Testament lesson begins with God taking a sprig, a young and tender twig from the top of a majestic cedar tree and planting it. Now this very first image in Ezekiel 17.22 is designed to capture our attention as it is the focus of the rest of the passage. Simply put, and hopefully easily recognized, the sprig is Jesus. But what is the imagery of the sprig being lifted from an already existing tree? The focus of this section in Ezekiel is on the humanity and nativity of Jesus Christ. And what it is teaching us this morning is that Jesus is the very best of humanity. And as the very best of humanity, Jesus serves as an example and as the standard of what every human should strive to be. You won't hear me do this too often in a sermon, but for those who grew up in the 90s, this is the proper application of WWJD. What would Jesus do? This is, these sorts of passages are where we put that to practice. When we think of how a person should act in any given situation, Jesus should come to mind. He is full of grace. He's full of humility. He is full of wisdom, and most importantly, he's not full of sin. But that's the real problem for us, and the real problem with the philosophy like what would Jesus do? We are full of sin. We have failed. And that's why we can't ever leave Jesus at the point where he's merely or solely our example. Doing that will only result in our shame and in our damnation. As the very best of humanity, however, Jesus is also our 
substitute. And later on in these three verses, all of the rest of people are compared to, to trees as well. Jesus stands in our place because he is our brother. Jesus, as the very best of humanity, succeeds where we and every human being, back to Adam and Eve, have failed. God took Jesus, his only son, and planted him in creation and in history so that he might be one of us. And in fact, so that he might be the very best of us. As it turns out, in creation, any time we see God gardening, we should pay attention because something amazing is going to happen. And so God takes the sprig and he plants it on a mountaintop and it grows. Now this is perhaps the most interesting of the four images we're going to talk about, at least from my perspective. It's interesting for two reasons. Now, I am neither a horticultural expert, nor, having grown up in North Dakota, am I an expert on mountains by any stretch of the imagination. But I do know this. If you're going to plant a tree, or anything really, the top of a mountain doesn't really represent the apex of fertile soil or optimal growing conditions. Mountains, in fact, have a tree line for this very reason. Trees don't grow above the tree line. They stop. Every high mountain is bald, okay? Mountains are also made of solid rock. There's not a lot of soil, especially at the bare, exposed peak of a mountain. This leads us to the second interesting part of the image. You have the unusual planting, but the fulfillment of this image isn't what we would think on first glance. When God plants the tree high on a mountain, what we are intended to see is Jesus' crucifixion. That's the fulfillment of this activity of God. Because on the cross, Jesus was exalted for all the world to see. <clears throat> and as Jesus stretched out his arms, the entire world finds shelter under Jesus' death and resurrection. In this depiction of the crucifixion, there's no extreme suffering, there's no inhumane torture, there's no agony, there's no blood, there's none of that. It doesn't mean that they're not there. <clears throat> it's just not our focus momentarily. I think perhaps at this point we're supposed to be taking Jesus' explanation to Nicodemus about his own crucifixion to heart. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's exactly what Jesus' crucifixion is accomplishing here as Ezekiel prophesies for us. The brutality and deep cost of our sin is not being denied. But the reality and result of Jesus' successful completion of redemption is being highlighted. 
Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sins, Jesus' fulfilling of the gospel promises, starting with Genesis 3.15, which we talked about last week, and in all of Scripture, this singular event, Jesus' crucifixion, is the shelter and hope of all creation. It is essentially for us as Christians where we are to live and to spend our days. All of God's love for us is defined in and interpreted through Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Consider Romans 8 for a second. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For those of you who suffer through life, for those of you who question whether God loves you or whether God must be punishing you, know that because of Jesus' crucifixion, God's opinion of you is only and ever Jesus Christ on the cross in your place. And what this means is that all of our day-to-day life as Christians is to be lived in the reality of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. We will be unable to love our neighbors unless we understand Jesus Christ on the cross in our place. We will be unable to work through our own suffering unless we are sure and certain of God's objective and absolute love for us in Jesus Christ. Without the reality of the crucifixion, we are left striving, working for, and competing with others for salvation. Jesus is our rest and our protection. But it's not some mere abstract concept of Jesus. Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus lifted up high for the world to see and turned to for life is our rest and our protection. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is our hope and our comfort. The third image for us to consider from this section of Ezekiel is the great reversal. All the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord, I bring low the high tree and make, the high, make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. This is the sort of thing that theologians throughout the ages have called the great reversal. It is an unexpected reversal of fortunes that points us to God's sovereignty, that points us to his justice, and especially it points us to his goodness and grace. We see this biblical theme all over the place in Scripture. Stories like Joseph, like the contrast between King Saul and King David, and Jesus' own teaching about sitting at the end of the table rather than taking the seat of honor. But what we often miss in Scripture is that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all the great reversal imagery in Scripture. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity who took on human flesh and became one of us. We refer to this as his humiliation. But then Jesus, in dying an indignant death on the cross, 
and suffering the worst punishment that humans can inflict on another human, Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and now sits at the right hand of God Almighty from where He will judge the living and the dead. This is His exaltation. In the completion of His humiliation and exaltation, Jesus becomes the fulfillment and standard for all other great reversals. And that includes the rest of the trees depicted here in Ezekiel. You and me and all humanity. Jesus is the standard for the humbling of the high tree. When God brings calamity, when God causes suffering, and when God condemns us with His law, God's goal in all of that isn't the shame. It isn't the punishment. It isn't the condemnation. God's goal is repentance. And this isn't to say that every time you suffer in life, God is punishing for you, you for your sins. Now, He might be, but rather the point is that any time anything happens to you in life, and I mean that. I can't possibly be more broad about it. Whenever anything happens to you in life, even the good things... Read Romans 2.4 later today. God wants you to repent. God wants you to be repenting. Because in repenting of your sins, God will forgive you every single time. Forgiveness, grace, and mercy is always God's goal Because without His forgiveness, without His grace, and without His mercy, there is only humility, only an eternity of judgment for your sins. You will be brought low if you intend to stand in pride before God with your own good works to impress Him. But Jesus is also the standard for the exalting of the low tree. Again, this is not to say that if you've been humbled in life, that you can expect some sort of reversal of fortune like Job and have everything you've lost restored to you tenfold. That's not the guarantee. The focus here in this promise is on resurrection and eternity. You, in your sin, and because of your sin, are the dead tree. Your sin has killed you. This has been God's promise from the very beginning. But in Christ, God has made you alive. That's what Chanel read for us this morning. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. And this life you have will find its completion in eternal life at the end of time, a perfect, restored life free of sin, free of suffering, free of pain, free of sorrow, and even free of death. And this is what leads us to our final image of our Old Testament lesson. God says, I am the Lord, I have spoken, I will do it. Jesus is the proof and the guarantee of all God's promises in Scripture. All things for God are yes and amen 
because of Jesus. This is so incredibly important because of the words I speak to you and the word of God I deliver to you on a weekly basis. God forgives your sins because of Jesus. God adopts you as his own dear child because of Jesus. God has sealed you for all eternity because of Jesus. Not because you deserve it. Not because you can eventually earn it or pay God back for it. But simply because of Jesus. When God delivers to you words of promise and hope, of life and salvation, of restoration and resurrection, He means business. He is the Lord. He does not, nor can He lie. And He has spoken these words to you. And He will do it. It's that simple. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.